Hello, everyone. My guest today is Scott Santens. And the reason I want to get him on the show is there is so much talk uh, with the virus happening. But frankly, there's been a lot of talk about this for a long time related to an unconditional basic, basic income, UBI. Scott's written extensively on this topic. He's an advocate with a crowdfunded basic income currently. He's also board of directors at Fund for Humanity and the senior policy advisor for uh, Mike, who is running, he's a UBI advocate, running for the Senate seat in Kentucky that is currently held by Mitch McConnell. Scott, you ready to jump in and chat about this stuff? Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, Mike Breuer too, in case you were curious. Mike Breuer, spell the, and, and I was going to say, spell the last name for us. It's a B-R-O-I-H-I-E-R, Breuer. And what, what are you excited about? I mean, you're in, again, you're in New Orleans. He's running in Kentucky. What's the connection? He is, um, his son was part of the Yang Gang and introduced him to, um, uh, the idea of basic income through Yang's campaign, and he, uh, Mike, read Yang's book, and uh, after reading that, he he really you know understood how important the idea of, of uh, basic income is. So he decided to make it a uh, a major part of his campaign. Mm-hmm. He's actually already running on a campaign of uh, economic and social justice, so it really just uh, fit. What got you, let's backtrack a bit. And then I want to jump into to, you know, news from today, which is we just saw essentially a $2,000 per person plus $2,000 per child, essentially stimulus uh, proposed by a group of centers, centers, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Ed Markey from Massachusetts calling it the monthly economic crisis support act. We'll jump into that in a second, but where did UBI start for you? When did you really start writing and studying it? Yeah, I, I came across this idea back in 2013, and this was before the Oxford report came out that uh, many people now are familiar with as far as the report suggesting that perhaps half of all jobs would be automated in the next 20 years. So that that got people talking a lot about the future of work. And at the time, there just was no discussion about this. Uh, but I did actually, it was through a discussion on Reddit that was uh, oriented around the future of work and about how quickly technology is advancing. And uh, there was a book recommendation there called uh, Mana by Marshall Brain. And it was after reading that book and the author who supported a basic income uh, got me researching the history, the evidence behind it, the philosophical reasonings behind it, and uh, learned more about the way that our existing welfare system works. And uh, after all of that, I just came to realize that, uh, you know, this is actually an extremely important idea that can improve um, many things all at once in a way that uh, nothing else really can. Uh, It goes far beyond just the automation of work and these things. So it was reaching that conclusion that really got me uh, studying and writing about it and doing all uh, that I can. Let's go down that path, automation of work. What do you believe that means? Just when we talk about Moore's Law, number of transistors per circuit board drastically increasing. Technology, as Jeff Booth says in his book, The Price of Tomorrow, is by nature deflationary. It drives down costs. But the government obviously has an inflation target every year, which means it's printing loads of money to try and compete with this technology deflation. At some point, things have to break. But the overarching trend is automation and job loss. What does that mean for UBI? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you know the the the, the popular discussion or, or what most people are discussing is kind of this uh, uh, debate about whether sufficient automation exists and and whether like automation net um, eliminates jobs or net creates jobs. 
And, um, you know, it's true that, that technology creates new jobs, uh, but it's also true that technology uh, makes a lot of jobs no longer necessary. And if you look at the history of automation since essentially the, the uh, invention of the semiconductor, you'll see that, um, that our economy has actually grown uh, twice as productive as we were back in the 70s. You're measuring this based off GDP growth? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, um, and even though we're twice as productive, are we all working half as much? No, we're not. Are we all consuming twice as much? No, we're not. Like all of this economic growth has actually flowed to the very top and most everyone else has seen stagnant wages to the point where it's harder and harder to live the American dream. It's uh, you have to work even more than you did back in the 70s. So you, you know, back then you could even have a one person, one worker household and you could live a middle class life with a high school degree. And at this point, you now have to have essentially two earners in the household. They really need college degrees uh, unless they're working even like three or four jobs. And uh, so we've seen this, this, this economic uh, you know, dream kind of disappear for the American public. And so this automation just goes right into that because it actually, not only does it eliminate jobs, but it also presses down on wages. That's another effect. And there's also a, a skills polarization kind of thing going on where we're eliminating the middle skill jobs. So uh, traditionally, you can think of this as like the car manufacturing kind of workers who the robots took over and then robots make cars. You don't need as many workers as you did back then. Mm -hmm. And so those were good paying jobs, union 60K kind of jobs. And then so those people are out of work. And where do they go? They actually tend to go more often than not down to the lower skill spectrum. Those are the jobs that are being created uh, in mass essentially over the decades. We're creating more and more low-skilled jobs. So that means those jobs traditionally are also lower income. So as long as people need income to survive, they're going to have to go back into the labor market and they have less and less bargaining power because machines can do more and therefore you're competing against each other to lower your wages down. So a lot of the story of automation is actually not only about unemployment, but about underemployment. Automation and the way that it was presented with its causal effects you just articulated, many are listening going, this sounds like a very negative thing. However, we get massive productivity gains. Is automation good or bad? Automation should be good. We, automation should work for all of us, except the problem is, is that it doesn't. We have to make it work for all of us. You know, it doesn't just happen. So technology is a tool, and we're not using that tool to benefit everybody. Right mm -hmm. now, those tools essentially only benefit the owners of those tools, and we are not claiming any ownership of that. So it's just increasing inequality greatly. In claiming any ownership of that, how do we change that? Yeah, I, I think that it's, a, it's important to, to kind of... Um, to have that perception that this is a, it's a, a return on our investment. So like in Alaska, there has been a universal dividend since 1982. They received that because they believe that the oil of Alaska is something that they essentially all co-own. And when it comes to technology, 
basically all type one, all level one research is actually government funded. So all these tax dollars are going into these technologies, uh, including self-driving cars. I mean, this was uh, originally a DARPA project that was funded by the military really to start up. And uh, there's a lot of these technologies that we create using our tax dollars. And then the companies just take the ones that seem like they could build into profitable businesses and profitable technologies and just use it. And then what do we get in return? We're just told that in return, we get to be able to purchase those products. And it doesn't really make sense if you think about it in terms of like, say, investing in Apple. Like if you if you buy stock in Apple, then when Apple makes a new product, you aren't just told that congratulations, now you get to buy a new product. You actually have this, you know, a dividend that you can get from Apple and you have a, a, an increasing value of that stock in Apple that can benefit you. So I think it's important that we see our economy as essentially, you know, a giant corporation where as citizens, we are stockholders and we should get a return on our investment that we're investing in these technologies. And also the technologies are actually, especially increasingly trained by our data when it comes to artificial intelligence and deep learning algorithms and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So we should understand that, that it is our data that is helping make this possible. You mentioned government and government-fueled kind of technological innovation, especially DARPA and things coming out of defense. You know, someone might go, okay, yeah, that's fine as maybe the initial seed, but, you know, Alphabet and Google in 2019 spent over a billion dollars of their own capital on their self-driving unit. Uh, Why should, you know, you know, the counter argument to the one you just made are folks at Google saying, we're investing a lot. We haven't made a dollar on this yet. We're investing a lot. When we do start turning profit, we deserve to make the money. We spent billions of dollars developing the technology. Yeah. And there's nothing that says that they shouldn't earn the money. This is about percentages. So, you know, if we, instead of say Google keeping 100% of their revenue, then perhaps it should be, you know, 90% or 95% or, you know, there's some percentage that we're saying that we are the ones that put up the original research. We're the ones who did the original investment. We should be seen as the original investors. When you say we, you're talking about the American public and the money they pay into taxes that the government then subsidizes the early part of the technology related to self-driving cars. Yeah. Again, all research, because there's no profit in that research, it comes down to government or to pick that up. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be the case, like back in the day, like say Bell Labs was a, was a, bit, was a company that did a lot of its own R&D. And that just doesn't exist anymore. If it's not profitable, people aren't going to do it. So all these, this exploration in, into new technologies and, and new knowledge, that's uh, really just government funded. Let's keep going down this path. Let's say audiences listening right now, they're shaking their heads going, this, what Scott is saying makes sense. Uh, automation is removing jobs. Productivity gains are going to those that control these companies. Uh, we're twice as productive as we were you know, many, many years ago, but we're not working half as much and we can't buy twice as much. So something's wrong. They're hearing you say there should be some credit back to American taxpayers for these technological innovations that say Google is what you're essentially proposing here, what other, you know, 191 other countries around the world have done, which is, you know, some form of VAT tax, not on profits like taxes Google pays, but actually on top line revenue. Yeah, I, I think a, a VAT tax is a very, very effective way of, uh, of getting the revenue um, coming from this in a way that both works and is um, uh, 
effective and it's it's uh, indirect. I mean, I, I like that you with an with a VAT tax, the amount that you pay into it is the amount that you choose to pay into it. So it's your it's based on your consumption. If you're like a a wealthy billionaire or something, and you're choosing to not spend all this money on consumer goods, and you're instead uh, saving and investing it, then you aren't paying a lot into that because you're not really, you know, you're just paying for the basics or whatever. But if you're like a billionaire and you're just spending on everything and the economy is, is really doing a lot for you because you're consuming such a good high percentage of what the economy is producing, then you pay more into it. And that only seems to make sense. If corporations, any company that sells a good or service in the United States has to pay a 10% VAT tax, Scott, doesn't that mean that to cover that extra expense, they'll just increase their prices by 10%? It's certainly possible. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is competitive interests involved here so that you do not want to raise your prices if you don't have to. Uh, and so this would mean that instead of, let's say, Amazon uh, uh, passing on, let's say, you know, $5 onto like something that's, that costs $50, then they could lower that price to, to say, you know, uh, if they wanted to eat the entire thing, say like, you know, 45 or around there, pass that on um, uh, so that the consumer ends up still paying $50 instead of $55 even though the 10% tax is actually added on. And that, it really depends on competition. And we also see in Europe, too, that around on average, about half of the VAT is passed on and about um, half is absorbed. And we also have seen something very similar to that happen just recently with all the tariffs that uh, Trump applied to uh, a bunch of goods. And we saw that that these companies did not want to pass that on to consumers. They wanted to try to eat as much of that as they could because, again, they have a competitive market. They don't want to lose that competitive edge by increasing those prices. Can you cite maybe a company, with tariff example is potentially a good one to use, that that kind of this is what it showed is that those, that those costs were not passed on to consumers? The company ate it? Um, I don't remember specific companies. Uh, like maybe it was Harley-Davidson um, I, I think there's there's certainly um, the companies that are using steel that were affected, uh, but I don't remember specific companies uh, at this point. I just remember that that there were examples of, of companies really doing that. We're, we're building the case for VAT tax currently, and as the interview continues, I want to dive into that additional creative revenue. How could it potentially be redistributed, right, to kind of even out the 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 this kind of divide between the have and the have-nots? Going quickly back to automation, as Peter Drucker always says, uh, you know, what gets measured gets managed. Uh, one of the reports you always hear coming out weekly, almost, are jobs. Politicians are incentivized by create more jobs. And this leads to behavior like the following. Uh, we saw Ford uh, announce, uh, I believe this was November, it was November 26, 2018, or sorry, General Motors uh, delivered essentially, I mean, life-altering news to thousands of workers on its factory floors, basically saying it would indefinitely idle four factories in the United States and one in Canada by the end of 2019. Scott, this put at risk essentially 2,800 active hourly jobs in the United States. Now, from a capitalist perspective, I see this and go, they must have found a cheaper way to do it. 
Maybe the plant's going to Mexico. However, because any job loss is a black guy politically and in the media, President Trump immediately hits back on Twitter saying they better figure out a way to quick to keep that plant open. Isn't that bad behavior? Shouldn't we encourage job loss if these companies are making things more effectively and driving productivity gains? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, we should be investing in automation and we should be we should get out of this. Um, I say almost like a, it's like a trap of full employment. This belief that that it's best for people to be doing these jobs. Um, I think that we should be aiming for full unemployment. Like our goal should be how much. Uh, if a job can be done by a machine, then let's make a machine do it, uh, because that frees up that person to be doing other things. And it's not only about the enabling of activities. Um, that automation uh, enables. It's also about time. And in order to free up time, that is something that is that is its own good because, again, we also need time in order to consume. So we have a 70% consumer-based economy, and this all ties into automation as well, where if you eliminate someone's job, then as long as income is coupled to jobs, then you actually are reducing their ability to spend on the stuff that the machines are making. So as you automate more and more, then the entire consumer-based system breaks down because people are no longer able to purchase stuff. So we want to make sure not only that people continue to be able to purchase what the machines are producing, but we want to make sure that people have time to consume what the is being manufactured by machines. And I think people are, are even kind of getting a taste of that right now, where let's say suddenly people have a lot more time on their hands. They're, you know, we're all stuck at home. We're all like finding things to do. There's a lot more like, you know, video game consoles are doing quite well. People are, are, are reading more. People are streaming more. Uh, people are, are engaging more like, uh, like we're doing right now as far as like using Zoom and these things. And so all of this requires time. And if people are working, you know, 80 hours a week just to get by, then what are you consuming? Not only do you have not, not the money to consume more than just the basic needs if you are, you know, earning low wages, but also you have no time whatsoever and no inclination. You want to get home and you just, you know, eat, sleep and start over again. And you're not a consumer if that's all the time that you have. So let's wrap, let's, let's, let's go to present day, right? COVID. Uh, there's all kinds of different stim, you know, starting with the CARE Act, $2 trillion CARE Act. You've got the federal balance sheet doubling. We have an amount of debt in the United States that's now just broke yesterday or the day before about $25 trillion compared to national GDP of 22 trillion historically. So almost a, you know, 108% debt to GDP ratio. Part of part of the question that policymakers have been asking is, even if you stimulate and get businesses open, if consumers have been out of work, right? And a core piece of GDP, one of the four components to calculate GDP is obviously personal consumption. Yeah. They're going to have no money to go personally consume. So how... Um, how, to what degree does that kind of angle impact the news we saw this morning, uh, from Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Ed Markey on the monthly economic crisis support act to put a $2,000 check, uh, in the, in the pockets of individuals. 
Yeah, we are already in this deflationary cycle that is the direct result of, of this recession. And of course, we can't even call it a recession yet because of how we like to find recessions being like after the fact, you know, after it's been going on for a while. But uh, we are in a recession. And part of this, uh, part of the problem is that you'll see you close up some jobs uh, because people, you know, for own health, you don't want people gathering in those places and stuff. So there's a lot of jobs we eliminated. But then other jobs tried to keep going, and but they were affected by the fact that people no longer had money to spend at those places, and then so those jobs closed. And then those people's wages also were not able to spend elsewhere, so then more jobs closed. So this is, we're already in this downward cycle. The only way to break that is to make sure that people get money to spend. And so right now, as the economy is still closed, you can still help businesses stay alive and even do better and even need to hire more people in certain cases um, if you actually have enough customers. So I, I think like you're seeing a lot of people do a takeout more than people did before. Um, you know, a lot of people would usually just go out to restaurants and now the only way to support that restaurant is to get some kind of takeout and delivery um, to your place. And so if you are in, in, affected in a way that you lost your job, you, you're just focused on you know paying your rent and these things, you're not going to go to that restaurant. You, you can't afford it. So if you do have that money, if you do, if we make sure that everyone gets two thousand dollars a month for the rest of this crisis, then first of all, you prevent a lot of those businesses from failing that would otherwise have failed. You grow and stimulate these businesses and allow others to open up that otherwise couldn't function without this money or without those customers. And then when we're actually fully reopened, then of course you're also able to combat against the uh, behavioral changes that we're going to be seeing where businesses, you know, even if they're open, people aren't going there, um, you know, not only because of money, but because of other reasons. So if, you, if you're able to create enough customers through more demand, then you can help compensate against that, that um, decrease, that kind of psychological demand because people don't want to be there and allow other people who do want to be there to be able to do that uh, through their spending. Through spending, obviously, when you look at what consumers are going to spend, you also have to tie it back to the prices of the things they're buying. You argued at the beginning of that statement that we're in a deflationary period. However, when, when you look at, you know, the federal government printing so much money, interest rates going very, you know, down very, you know, basically to zero, that essentially benefits, you know, in an inflationary period, those that get wealthy are asset holders, which is why the rich have gotten richer over the past many decades. Because if you own assets and the Fed has a target of 2% inflation year over year, you will always, asset holders will be the winners. In a deflationary period, cash holders are the winners goods get cheaper. And if you have a lot of cash, you can buy more from these cheaper products. Part of the dichotomy we see happening today is the federal government and the treasury is pumping money into these assets and lowering rates. So for example, your landlord can now go refinance their 12 unit apartment complex at a 0% or very low interest, you know, 1.8% interest rate, yeah. which means they might then increase rents to make the debt payments, right? So they can optimize their return. So even if you are now getting, you know, a Kamala Harris, Ed Markey, Bernie Sanders, monthly economic crisis support act of $2,000 check, your rent went up. So these two things I see as directly competing with each other. One of them has to slow down for the other to become more effective. What, what buckles first? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, there's already a, a big problem. Um, and I, I actually, I, I'm 
like, I feel like ashamed to, to even be in a country where we have decided to do the exact same thing that we did during the last downturn. Like we already know that buying up all these assets uh, was something that vastly increased inequality and vastly um, disproportionately positively impacted, you know, asset holders. And we could have just bailed out the people, made sure that people could afford to, you know, pay their mortgages. And then that would have actually prevented these, you know, mortgage bundles, these, these securities to not fail. And instead, we just went right to giving money to the banks. Uh, and we're doing the same thing again. And so, yeah, that is, that is a problem. And, and it's also very inefficient. Like here we are, we're basically, the Fed is just shoveling trillions of dollars into banks and hoping that, that it will be cheap enough that people will take on debt and get that money out there and spend it. And it just doesn't, it's an extremely inefficient way of going about this. We could actually, the Fed could have introduced less money into this. Um, we could actually be paying for uh, a $2,000 a month uh, fully universal uh, basic income uh, for the amount of money that the, in, in, in the Fed is doing in one week. So, you know, it's, we're creating so much more than we need in order to actually, you know, boost this economy. And it's just, you know, just going to increase inequality. As for like price differences in these things, it's interesting that, that, um, you know, we're looking at some supply chain issues right now as well. And in, in like rent is an interesting case. That's a, I would say it's a separate case, but, um, I also just want to make sure that we even cover something like food um, because we're looking at a, at a, at a at circumstances right now where, you know, dairy farmers are dumping milks down the drains and that uh, farmers are plowing under their crops uh, because that food would have gone to restaurants and, and people would have bought those through restaurants and now they can't. And people, of course, need to eat. And instead, people, because they don't have the money to go to stores, which are full of actually food to, for people to buy, people are lining up by the thousands for food banks because that's the only way for them to get food. So you can see that in this kind of setup, we have the supply. We have plenty of food, except people don't have the pieces of paper in order to exchange for food. And so it just makes so much more sense for the entire economy to make sure that everyone can actually go to grocery stores and buy food from restaurants instead of needing to go to food banks. That just makes so little sense to do. And that would actually be, you know, much better for prices. Um, when it comes to rent, yeah, that's a, that's a different issue. And we um, you know, have to tackle, tackle that even separately. Well, I think the reason I come back to rents is because if you look at the 2019 study done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you look at percent of annual household spending by income and compare the top 20%, right, versus the bottom 20%, the bottom 20% spend a disproportionate amount, about 40.4% of their incomes on housing. Next largest is 15.4% uh, to your point on food. And lastly is 14.5% on transportation. So housing, transportation, and food, right? Key necessities. The, many argue that if you did give a basic income, most of the GDP growth, most of the poor would spend on those three categories. What, 
what is tricky for me to try and wrap my head around, uh, and it's why I'm, I want to talk to more folks like you, even referencing your example of 2008, when you say, and you look at banks, I mean, you have to remember the reason that 2008 happened was because banks made it so consumers could do more of the thing that they naturally wanted to do, which was buy the bigger house. They approved people that they knew couldn't afford it because of the banking fees. And before you knew it, you had a subprime mortgage crisis, but it was driven just as much by the consumer signing that loan, in my opinion, as it was the banks pushing these loans out to make fees on the mortgages, right? And collateralizing them. So it still comes back to the question of if you give people money and you enable people to buy more, will they spend it effectively? Yeah. So first of all, um, it's an interesting question to even say like effectively, like rationally might be a better statement. And I think that, um, you know, one person's rational expenditure is another person's wasteful expenditure, but it's entirely rational and not wasteful to that person. And I think that's even part of the problem with all this government spending is that you get a whole bunch of bureaucrats together and they decide what, where money should go. And in making those decisions, of course, it's oftentimes incredibly wasteful and ineffective and people don't actually get what they need. So I think that it makes far more sense for make sure that, that people get to choose for themselves where that money should go. And I think that by and large, and we see this from, from the evidence of experiments too, that people do know what they need most and that's what they spend it on. Um, when it comes to housing, this is actually a good example. Can you talk Scott about one of those experiments real quick before you move on to housing? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I can combine those. Okay. Uh, so in the experiments in the 70s, um, you know, we did these uh, negative income tax experiments and they took place in, in New Jersey and um, uh, rural North Carolina and uh, Seattle and Denver, um, you know, a bunch of different cities across the country. And um, one of those in, in actually a couple of them, but specifically in Gary, Indiana, in that experiment, we saw that there was a large increase in homeownership. So people used that money and they used that to buy homes. It actually increased homeownership by 26%. And this was actually pretty, pretty um, surprising to the researchers because a mortgage is a very long-term expense. This is, you're signing up for something for like 30 years and people knew that they weren't going to get this more additional income for 30 years. They knew you could get it for like, you know, five years or something. So we can assume even from this that provided more income, people are going to want to own more homes instead of rent. Uh, a lot of renting is because people can't afford to actually be a homeowner. There's certainly a lot of renters that want to stay renters, but there's a lot of renters who would like to buy and as soon as you enable more people to buy, then that means that rents, of course, go down. There's, there's less pressure on them to go up, at least. And then another interesting thing, too, uh, when it comes to housing and a fully universal basic income, and this would have to be in like the long term, because I think in this particular situation, it, it's harder to move. Um, but when you actually have like a, a permanent kind of setup, then you're enabling essentially competition between high cost of living areas and low cost of living areas. You have a lot of people living around expensive cities because that's where all the jobs are. 
you can't, it's, it's become increasingly difficult to have a good life in like rural areas in the U S. Um, so if you enable people to actually move from cities to rural areas, and it would even make sense to do that because you're, you're, you know, thousand dollars or $2,000 or whatever it is, is going to go further in those lower cost of living areas. Then again, you're going to reduce pressure on, on rents in those cities. So that's another interesting impact of a fully universal uh, nationwide uh, basic income. You mentioned the Gary, Indiana experiment. This was the case in, in between 1971 and 1974, where about 1,800, I believe it was, Gary residents below, it was a big number, I think below 240% of the poverty line were randomly enrolled in this negative income tax sort of program. Home ownership is what spiked. But so that has, you know, you could argue, many people would argue that that quote unquote works, right? Many people, the largest wealth driver over the past three, four or five decades has been home ownership. When you ask yourself, why has that been a wealth driver though? I think you have to tie it back to the federal government's, you know, fixation on a 2% uh, inflation rate every year. And remember, in an inflationary environment, asset owners always win. So home ownership makes sense. However, if we envision a world where we let automation happen, using your quote, we aim for full unemployment so people are jobless and you actually let prices decrease over time, cash holders win and asset owners lose. You would not want to own a home in that environment because it would be decreasing in value over time. How does that work? Uh, I mean, this is a, in a, a debate between like, is uh, an inflationary policy good or is a deflationary policy good? Like, do you want prices to continually go up a bit? And what are the benefits in, in, of that versus the cons? And what are the benefits and cons of uh, you know, prices going down? And um, I mean, that's in a whole argument that uh, I, I don't think that that's even um, something to get into. Um, you know, I would, I would say personally, I, I think that there, there is sense behind um, prices increasing slightly. I have no problem with a, a small amount of inflation. And also, I, I actually don't even have a problem with the larger amount of inflation because, again, that it, the, the more inflation that there is is essentially – um, can be seen as like a, a wealth tax or something because it disproportionately impacts the you know owners of these these assets and um, if you're if you're taking out a loan on a house in a high inflationary environment then you're going to pay back uh, much less of the value of that house um, in a higher inflationary environment versus a deflationary environment. To your point earlier, though, you, 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 you kicked off the interview basically saying, hey, we're twice as productive. GDP has almost doubled, right, over the, over the past few decades. But we can't buy two times as much. The only way you can buy two times as much is if prices, like assuming, assuming incomes don't, let's say they say the same, right, which they haven't, but let's say they say the same. Uh, and the price of milk goes from $5 in 1950 to 250 today. You can now buy two gallons of milk on the same wage. You've let deflation, a decrease in prices, drive consumption growth because purchasing power is increased. You just argued the opposite, though, which is you'd be happy with more inflation, prices increasing over time. Yeah, I, I have no problem with prices increasing over time as long as the amount of money that people are receiving to spend is actually greater than that rate. So I believe that, that it makes sense to have an unconditional basic income floor. So we have you know, a floor that operates underneath this entire economy. 
everyone is earning income on top of that floor and the floor is rising so that it's indexed to productivity. So that let's say, you know, if we had introduced a thousand dollar a month basic income, you know, under Nixon in 71, then right now that would be um, close to, you know, I think it would be like $2,300 a month, somewhere around there right now that was indexed GDP per capita. So that's what I think makes sense. And you would actually have greater spending power through this increase in income um, versus the other way. I just think that, I think that makes more sense because even I think that over time we should be seeing ourselves as receiving more and more of this dividend, like our return on investment, um, instead of the opposite of seeing like, like kind of perceiving a dividend through a price decrease. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's dive into how this could actually operationally work in today's environment. You've cited all the studies. There's been a lot of them, but going back to today, uh, again, the monthly economic crisis support act, 2000 individuals that make under a hundred thousand a year. You saw Andrew Yang obviously run on a freedom dividend, uh, which seemed to be getting popularly. Hillary Clinton in her autobiography mentioned they looked at having her run on this uh, back in 2016. She chose not to because she couldn't figure out how to pay for it. How do you pay for this? That's what she says. What do you think the real, you laugh when you said, what do you think the reason was? Why didn't she make that a core piece of 2016? Well, I, I laugh because uh, Hillary is Hillary and she will say things based on the economic wins. And so it's, it's funny to me um, how she claims that she was uh, thinking about this and thinking I'm running on it. And maybe she was, but what I also think is interesting is when she was running, she was actually against the idea of base income. So it wasn't, she didn't say, oh, I think it's a great idea, but we can't afford it. She was not interested in the idea. She didn't like it. And so I think that's, you know, she's just choosing, um, she decided years later to say that she was thinking about it because it had grown more popular to the point where she then felt like the political winds were in her favor to say that she was for it. So that's why I kind of laugh about the, about the Hillary stuff. But when it comes to being able to afford it, Andrew Yang, he, he made a, you know, a good argument as far as value-added tax and, and you know, that would create $800 billion um, worth of revenue or around that. And, um, and I like the way that, that... Scott, explain that before you move on. Back us into the 800, 800 number. Yeah, so if you have a 10% value-added tax, then that generates around $800 billion worth of revenue. And, and that's, it depends on, you know, like what the um what you're applying that to as far as the goods involved and uh, the way andrew wanted to do that was to actually exclude stuff like consumer staples like foods and and things and then actually crank it up on those like luxury goods so it wasn't actually like a, a flat 10 percent that it was more like an average 10 percent that um but just calculating a a flat 10 percent that and applying it to everything we could then estimates are it's around $800 billion worth of revenue. So that is an important element. Right, Scott, that's the that's, sorry, that's the conservative, which would only be on luxury goods, would generate 800. If you applied a flat 10% across our total 21 trillion GDP, obviously that's 2.1 trillion versus the 800 billion. Well, no, it's because you're, you're still excluding a bunch of, of stuff and it doesn't apply to, you know, it's not as simple as just saying it's the economy is two point, you know, twenty one trillion, and therefore ten percent of that is is you know two point one. Um, if you look at at any estimate of value added tax, it's always around eight hundred billion dollars worth of, of U.S. and and of course people will vary that um, in various ways 
I believe it makes more sense to have a flat uh, amount, but it's around $800 billion for 10% of that. And if you go, if you, it's important then to go on to what are the savings and what are the effects on the actual economy. You know that, that people spending this money by putting the money in the hands of spenders is going to have a multiplier effect on the economy. And that too is something that you can have estimates on. Um, uh, we know that, that uh, something similar in Canada called the Canada uh, Child Benefit, uh, it, it kind of looks like a basic income for a lot of various families. So like, let's say if you're a single mother and you have two kids and you could be receiving $1,000 per month. And so, you know, for that particular situation, it looks very much like Andrew's freedom dividend. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes, it, it's, it goes to all households in Canada um, earning under, you know, a certain amount, in which case it goes to most Canadian families. Every dollar distributed actually increases GDP by $2. So you know that there's going to be a large um, economic growth impact from this uh, because Moving money from those, you know, the the those with the higher propensity you can consume are at the bottom of the income spectrum, and those with the lowest are at the top. Those at the top are not spending on all these consumer goods that that drive the economy. They're they're investing it, they're they're saving it, or it's but it's not going into all these products that that generate all this. So we know that there's going to be a large um, economic growth impact from this as well, which further increases uh, tax revenue. But then the other thing too is the savings involved. So one of the impacts in the um, Delphin Manitoba study in Canada in the 1970s uh, was a reduced hospitalization rate of 8.5%. And through other studies too, we know the Alaska dividend uh, improves the birth weights of babies. And that actually increases health of, of adults. We also know from the Canadian dividend too that it actually reduces um, obesity, uh, and so there's a. We also know that there's a lot of, you know, eighty to ninety percent of health outcomes are actually through the social determinants of health. It's determined by you know the environment. If you're if you're very stressed out, if you're in an impoverished environment, then you know you're going to get diseases at higher rates of, of things like you know uh, diabetes. Uh, cardiac disease, even cancer. Uh, a lot of this comes from this, um, you know, these these poor environments. So if you make sure that people are lifted out of these poor environments and you don't experience that stress and insecurity and instability, then we can save a lot of money that we're otherwise spending on healthcare. So that's one of those things where you know people say, "Oh, let's have universal healthcare." It's like great, but do we want to have an approach where we're like saying, "Okay." Um, let's not develop a vaccine for polio. Let's just have iron lungs for all. Or do we want to have a vaccine approach that says, let's actually try to avoid people needing an iron lung by actually developing a vaccine that makes people immune to polio. And so this is, that's what UBI does as well. Is it, is it's a vaccine approach and prevents a lot of, um, medical care that's, uh, that's necessary only because we have, didn't avoid it in the first place. Yeah, Scott, you're arguing a UBI is, is, you know, proactive healthcare, right. Is reactive. Yeah. Okay. So b- before we go and keep breaking down, like the cost savings, w- what is the price tag? What would UBI and the United States today cost? Yeah. So 
the, so the, the, there's a difference between the gross cost tag and the net uh, price a, as well. So let me just try to explain that because a lot of people mistake the cost of basic income by just taking whatever the amount is and multiplying it by the number. Of people well, but do, but, but, but do that because that's the number that you'll hear in the news, especially with people arguing against it, and then go and we'll work to the gross cost based off all the savings. So what's the total? Yeah. So if you do that, in, then if you're going to do $1,000 per month uh, per person, and you're going to go to citizens in the United States, then it's a little over $3 trillion. That's the gross cost. Um, but it's important to understand that the net cost, because... A UBI is a very unique program in that people are essentially spending money to receive money. And that is unlike any other program. If, if you're spending for healthcare, then you're spending money, but you're getting healthcare back. And so the cost of that is the cost. But if you're spending, you know, $10, let's say if you go into a store and there's a, a $10 bill on sale that you can buy, then you spend $10 on it. then are you $10 richer? Are you $10 poorer? Um, it nets out to zero. You essentially you know, bought your own $10 for the same of not doing anything. And so w- when you look at UBI too, there's this, um, you can look at it as a slope where there's a, a threshold point where someone is essentially paying $12,000 to receive $12,000. And in which case that cost is zero. They're paying for their own. And anyone spending more than $12,000 for their $12,000 is, again, spending for their own. And then on the other side of that line, people are net receivers. They're spending, let's say, if you're spending $6,000 to receive $12,000, then that's $6,000. Scott, sorry, what do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Spending $6,000 on what? $6,000 is in increased taxes to receive the $12,000. So whatever the... the um, the tax regime put in place, whatever you're doing to, to make the basic income possible, um, you have to subtract out what people are receiving from what they're paying to get it. And if you looked at uh, like the 10% value added tax and Andrew Yang's freedom dividend, then the threshold point, depending on you know uh, expenditure details, is that, uh, and also if you assume that the full 10% of the VAT is even uh, passed on to the consumer, then if you're spending $120,000 on goods and services every year and 100% of that is going towards that, uh, that goods and services and the full cost is put on, then you are essentially paying $12,000 in VAT for your $12,000 in basic income. And that's where the net is. So those spending more than $120,000 on VAT goods and services are net payers and those spending less than $120,000 on goods and services are net receivers. Yep. Talking about this pattern, uh, and this data is updated uh, through 2018 from the U.S. Census Bureau, about 11.8%, it was a poverty rate here in the United States. That's about 38.1 million Americans. The current welfare programs, besides the bureaucracy, which libertarians constantly yell at, and I think you know maybe it's warranted, but we can chat about that. But besides all the bureaucracy that you would do away with, it's about a trillion dollars annually in supporting, you know, hundreds, I think it's maybe between 100 and 200 different kinds of welfare programs. Can we credit, will that trillion dollars of our current welfare state, uh, can we credit that and basically put that into uh, paying for UBI? Will will they replace each other? 
we can absolutely do that. And I, and I recommend doing that to a large degree, but not um, 100% kind of degree, because I think there are things that make sense to keep and things that don't make sense to replace with cash. Example of that would be like Medicaid. Like it wouldn't make sense to me to, to cash out Medicaid and provide people um, that is money instead of you going about like a universal healthcare kind of system. That to me makes more sense. But there are programs, I think TANF is the best example of the program, that absolutely needs to be cashed out. Um, right now, that's a block grant system where the federal government is, is writing checks to states and states can actually determine for themselves how they want to spend that money on the poor. Now, they're supposed to spend that money on the poor and it's supposed to be a cash program. But there is enough leeway involved that the amount of cash has actually decreased from what was originally over 70% to now 23%. So most of it is not even cash anymore. And it's also not even reaching people. Like a, a, a good example recently was, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember which, which state this was. This just happened. And it was that um, the, the, the TANF money was actually, um, was actually, given to a to Brett Favre uh, for appearances that he didn't even make. So like not only should they not have done that, they shouldn't have used TANF money to actually pay Brett Favre for anything, but then Brett Favre didn't even do anything. So it's just like worse upon worse. And I think that's that's such a great example. Like there's so many things that the government decides that they should spend the money on that is not getting money to the people who need it. So that is definitely a program that should be replaced. And I also think that a good way to go about this would be just to treat the $1,000 per month as effectively you know, how we would treat every other income. If people were to get a $1,000 a month job, then many people would no longer qualify for, like, say, SNAP and these programs um, that they only qualify for because they aren't receiving enough income. And also, it would reduce some of the income too. So let's say if you're on SSI because you're disabled, then um, you know I would argue that we shouldn't just eliminate that program. But at the same time, they, I think they should get something on top of what they get from basic income. So if you're getting you know $700 right now through SSI, and because you start getting $1,000 per month, that is, that goes down to like $300 or something. I don't remember what it is then that's on top of the $1,000, but it's not the full amount that it was, in which case we are saving that revenue that we already are using for these other programs. It's a really, um, uh, it's an effective way of, of not shutting those programs down, but still getting those, that money uh, to people who need it and um, saving that money by essentially using the revenue we're already using and putting that to basic income instead. So that's uh, another like, good way to go about this. And then also I want to stress too that we do $1.5 trillion in tax expenditures every year. So there's a lot of, say, welfare that's written into the tax code. This is uh, tax credits, subsidies, allowances, deductions, um, all these things that we do in the tax code. And those things, I think, no longer become necessary either. And uh, you know, if you look at something like the home mortgage interest rate deduction, I mean, this is an example of a program that, uh, especially after the recent tax reform, is really only benefiting those at the top because you have to earn enough 
um, that the standard deduction you know, no longer applies to you and you're better off doing the, the deductions yourself. And in that case, we're providing you know, $30,000 a year to like a millionaire to help them pay their mortgage on their mansion. And so, you know, does that make sense? And why don't we see that as essentially a $30,000 a year basic income for a homeowner that has an expensive enough home? So I say eliminate a lot of those tax expenditures and use that money instead for basic income. Tax expenditures, TANF, welfare programs in general. There are people listening to this trying to follow the numbers. And this is part of the issue in a world where our attention spans are shorter and shorter. And we come up with opinions and be convinced of things in sound bites. One of the, one of, in my opinion, one of the reasons this sort of thing has not passed is because no one has packaged it in less than a sentence that makes crystal clear sense to everybody that is simpler. I think it has to be simpler than anything historically. Why even you, I mean, you, you study this for a living, uh, and it just, you know, we just, we've been talking about this for 45 minutes and we could talk for another four hours on all the different things to subtract or add. Why hasn't someone just come out and said, welfare state gone, we're doing 1500 every to every citizen, doesn't matter. We're not going to try and decide who gets in, who doesn't. There's no bureaucracy. We drastically eliminate poverty in the United States. We're okay with less employment because we've created a baseline of capitalism and consumerism at $1,500 per month. I mean, why hasn't someone just come out and said, that exclusively market the heck out of it and get it passed? Well, so I don't think that that would pass. I, I think that that uh, appeals to a very specific segment, and I don't think that that would be politically saleable. Uh, the closest that is, is is Charles Murray. And so Charles Murray's plan is to actually cash out everything and just provide people this um, universal basic income. And it actually, it was asked of economists if they would approve of that and like it was virtually like no economist approved of that approach to the point where it actually was it was actually sold as being like look at how many economists don't like basic income you know but it was they didn't like that version of basic income you know there's a lot of support for the idea among economists but not that particular way of going about it i think andrew yang actually sold it quite well talking about it as a dividend i think that that helps people understand what it is in, in this full universality thing, that really helps people too, saying, look, this is not something for the poor. This is for everybody. And, and he would say that, you know, capitalism doesn't have to start at zero. And that's what, you know, this is. Instead of capitalism starting at zero dollars per month, it's capitalism starting at a thousand dollars per month. I think it's a very simple way of looking at it. And if you're looking at it as a dividend, then it's something that you have earned instead of something as being some kind of charity or something like that. Yeah. My, my point is not how people think about getting the money right? Oh, I don't want this because I'm not, it is. But with in my opinion, look, this would be the largest social experiment ever in history by far. Um, there are a lot of advocates on both sides, but it is so easy. Even, even economists, economists are highly educated people that are top 1% compared to other 99, you know, the person in Kentucky listening to Fox news and CNN occasionally trying to figure out, do they like UBI and Andrew Yang or not? So of course, economists, they're, they're hard to get. It's hard to get five economists to agree on one plan anytime. 
because they all are so well educated. They want optimizations all the time. My point is there are a lot of people that argue the, uh, the benefits of this sort of thing far outweigh the nuance of getting the extra three sentences that some economists wants because they did a study 10 years ago on something. It's like more important to simplify this, water it down and just make it happen. And quite frankly, I mean, it's, this is why, you know, people say never waste a good crisis. You're seeing this happen now in a form with the virus. Yeah. Right. And you would never expect this to happen. I mean, under a Republican regime, fiscally conservative, but it's happening. And we're going to see, I mean, this is, we can kind of use this as a new sample, like a cohort case study on like, what does this do to the economy? So the, I mean, the question I guess I have for you is, is it going to take more crises like the virus? And that is actually the best marketer for UBI. I mean, we, the only reason we're talking about UBI like we are right now to the degree that we are is because of this crisis. And this crisis, it, it's essentially what those of us talking about automation have been talking about. It's just that the automation argument is something that takes place over a longer period of time. It's like, you know, the proverbial, um, you know, slow boiling frog kind of situation. And in this case, we just immediately, you know, put the frog in hot water and people went, ouch. <laughs> That's effectively what we're doing right now is we're saying that, wait a second, we really do, people need money. They, they need it quickly. How, what is the fastest way to get people money? What is the, the most efficient way of doing it? Um, it? Should there be, you know, should we find people to give people money or should we just make sure that people get the money without any kind of um, middlemen involved? Um, so that's suddenly the discussion that we have because it's like such a, you know, an immediate kind of situation. And so, you know, whatever happens after this, um, I, I think that, that uh, we're still going to see more of this. It's just going to, it's going to go back to the slow moving stuff. Um, but it's going to be, you know, perpetually painful to the point where this, like this, this pain is going to eventually lead to just people being completely fed up with this. Um, I'm really worried uh, about this because not only are we seeing, you know, this kind of immediate effects from people losing their jobs and losing their incomes, but also robots don't get sick. And we're already seeing people investing more in automation. And so if you look at the total number of people who, and supposedly that's, you know, the official numbers, those who have filed for employment, that's, um, you know, over, you know, was it 35 million now and, um, or 33 million now. And if you look at um, those who lost their jobs and lost their incomes, but, you know, have not filed for unemployment yet, there's like around 12 million estimated. So total, you know, you're looking at, at, you know, just over 30 million people who are, are you know, or 40 million, 40 million people who, who are without incomes and they are not coming back to their jobs. Like if we were to flip back on the economy like a light switch and just, you know, open everything up, then are all of those people going to go back to their jobs? No, they are absolutely not going to go back to their jobs. You're going to have a lot more machines doing a lot of these jobs um, for one thing. And then as we discussed earlier, people who have less money to spend are not going to be able to go to these places. And so, you know, that is the ultimate job creator is, is customers, is people spending money. And so if there's no demand for those jobs, they're not going to pop back up. 
So we're going to, I expect us to, to see something even worse than what we saw the last time this happened when, you know, it took 10 years to create all these jobs that we just lost in, in a matter of years. Yeah, but what, Scott, why are we talking about job creation though? That's my whole point. I think it's the wrong question. Why are we obsessed with working? We should be celebrating a two-day work week, letting the robots take over. Yeah, I, I agree. So, but, but you, even you, even you, someone so in this discussion comes back to the job growth question, which I think is just completely the wrong narrative to use if you're trying to drive UBI home. Yeah, the the I, I use jobs um, to, and and I use jobs specifically too. I'm not talking about work. I, I'm very careful about my language there. I use jobs because right now we still have income coupled to jobs, and even with UBI, people will be earning more income on top of their basic incomes from their employment, and it's income that actually drives all of this activity. So yeah, it, at first we have to sever this this coupling between income and jobs to the point where it's decoupled and people are receiving income regardless. And then that's when you can start getting into this, this frame of mind where we actually make sure that technology does enable us to consume more and have more time and therefore choose for ourselves what it is that we want to do, be it unpaid work, be it part-time paid work or via, um, you know, full-time employment and in, in careers and you know, all those become options. But the problem is in our existing economy, as long as income is coupled to jobs, that's where this money is coming from. And so we have to make sure that that basic income exists as this other form of income to make this possible. So if you have it your way, uh, because of the crisis, and by the way, there's a lot of people argue this crisis is essentially just advancing what's going to happen over the next decade or two anyway. Yeah. J. Crew is bankrupt, Gold's Gym, Dean and DeLuca, bankrupt, True Religion, bankrupt, Speedcast International, Fly Virgin Australia, the list goes on and on and on. These are a lot of things that many people would argue these jobs are going to go anyway with automation over the next 10 years. So, so or 10 to 20 years. So the crisis now has essentially some form of there's a check going to every American. If Scott Santins has his way, how does this morph itself into something that is actually congressionally passed, approved, stamped, and signed in perpetuity in terms of a new base UBI for every American citizen? Yeah, so um, I can just, uh, just kind of refer a little bit to the plan that I designed for Mike Breuer. Uh, because it is a, an emergency basic income plan that... Um, you remind people of context there too. So he's running Kentucky. Give, give some context there. Yeah, Mike Breuer is running for senator against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. Uh, this is an opportunity for Kentucky to finally fire Mitch McConnell. And Mike Breuer is, is one of their choices to replace him with. And he came to me to design his uh, UBI policy. And so his UBI policy that we that we launched a couple weeks ago is a two thousand dollars per month uh, base income per adult and a one thousand dollar per month amount per child um, immediately for the duration of the crisis. And you're also seeing that a lot in other bills too. Is this recurring month, recurring amount for the duration of the crisis? And then of course the duration is, is can be defined differently, but. Um, for Mike, that transitions to a $1,200 per month uh, per adult and $400 per kid amount. And that is funded, uh, a 10% VAT would kick in at that point 
to be part of this permanent UBI plan and also uh, tax reform, eliminating uh, most of those tax expenditures that I mentioned previously. So that that would go from a temporary to a permanent basic income. And so when you look then back at this plan that came out today, the monthly economic crisis support act, 2000 a month individuals, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year or less, which would be about 90.3% of, of, of Americans today. Uh, it seems like it's in lockstep with the plan you designed for Mike. Yeah. So there, there's a couple important differences. I think Mike's plan is actually, it's more similar to uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, their plan and Pramila Jayapal's plan that they, uh, co- that they sponsored. And so that is a uh, $2,000 per month for everyone uh, for the duration, um, at least for the duration of the pandemic, and then going to $1,000 per month for a year uh, afterwards uh, to effectively function as like a stimulus payment. And that's pretty much as close as it gets to Mike's because it's fully universal. Uh, the, the Democratic plan uh, on the, in the House that um, uh, was proposed by Tim Ryan and Ro Khanna, and also the new Senate plan uh, that you, you just mentioned earlier, those plans are actually means-tested plans. So um, the, the one that was the Senate side that was announced today, that actually uh, starts disappearing, uh, called clawback. It starts being clawed back at $100,000 per um, single and $200,000 per couple at a 10% clawback rate. So that means that after $120,000 or at $110,000, you're earning, uh, you're getting $1,000 per month instead of $2,000 per month. And at $120,000, you're getting zero. And everyone earning over $120,000 gets zero. And I think it's really important that we have a fully universal uh, amount, especially right now, because of this not knowing the situations that people are in. So like we, these plans say that they should go to, you know, people earning less than $120,000. And so, yeah, that, that sounds good, um, but you don't actually know that. What you're doing is you're basing it off of like what people filed in 2019 or 2018, just like the stimulus checks work, where you are essentially assumed to be in the same position that you were previously. So if you if you were earning $121,000 and that was your, your adjustable adjusted gross income in uh, 2019, and you could be in the situation where your income just dropped to zero. You don't have anything now. And maybe you're in a position too where you actually don't even qualify for unemployment income um, because maybe, you know, you're, self-employed your and and that's um you know maybe it's even though it's supposed to go to you maybe it hasn't so you've like fallen through the cracks and so we have to make sure that we we avoid people falling through the cracks that's what universality does and then it, it would just make more sense to say look if we want to exclude those earning over $120,000 then let's just say that come taxes next year then we apply a higher rate to those earning $120,000 that would claw back what they essentially got this year. That would make it a fully universal plan. And that's also, again, what we discussed earlier as far as the way UBI works with net receivers and, and net payers. Mm-hmm. Doesn't the bickering over when does the clog back kick in and is it on the front end or the back end or the tax rate or last year? I mean, I just feel like this has such an opportunity 
to help so many people, you're just going to have the political thing happen, which is both sides are going to fight for credit, right? For it. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Democrats right now where if Trump uses the virus and eventually, you know, you know, brands, because he's a great brands, these things, you know, the Trump dividend, yeah. right. And signs in, yeah, that's whatever the Trump check and signs into law. And it, it is basically the exact same plan, right. As Democrats, yeah. they, they probably will fight. And by, by the way, vice versa, I think Republicans will hit down any Senate sponsored, any, you know, democratically sponsored check to Americans because they don't want that credit to go to the democratic side because it's has major implications for who gets elected and who doesn't. Um, how do you, how do you like make all the, how do you encourage politicians to think longer term outside of their own election cycles and doing something which would be the largest social experiment in history, but it's one that's absolutely necessary when you look at automation taking over jobs. I mean, what it comes down to is, is us ultimately. It, it, these politicians, they, they do what they do because they either fear that they're going to lose their jobs or they can feel entirely safe and they don't need to worry about their jobs at all. What matters to the politicians is when like suddenly their, their phones light up and they're getting all kinds of constituents calling them and they're saying like, why aren't you supporting this? Or they're even saying, oh, thank you so much for supporting this, although usually it's the anger thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, they have to feel that that they need to actually support something and they will get fired if they go against something. So that's what it comes down to is if, if, if these, you know, we can expect because it is highly partisan, um, you know, our government has become hugely partisan that we are going to do this, you know, left versus right Republicans versus Democrats plan. Da, da, da. But if people are suffering and they get pissed off at these politicians on both sides, for not making this happen, then that's what stuff happens. Um, you know, even the, the reason Nancy Pelosi, I think, is, is talking even, she changed her tune. She originally was not for this stuff. And um, we actually helped push the, um, a group of us, the uh, Yang Gang Income Movement, uh, Basic Income Supporters, um, we led an initiative to actually contact your representatives when we knew that they were already considering the details of the next plan. And suddenly after like we were pushing that heavy on that on Friday and that Friday night is when Nancy Pelosi on Bill Maher for the first time talked about guaranteed income as a possibility, you know, something that they were looking at. And then she said it again a couple of days later. And I am, I am absolutely convinced that that she changed the way she was speaking about this because she had enough people reached and then people talking to her about that they were reached that she said, oh, wait, there's a lot of support for this. And so I think it comes down to Republicans will want to go against this uh, because it's a Democratic-led initiative and they'll want to put their own twist on it. Uh, either They'll either go against it or they'll want to change it up. Um, but it really depends, again, on Republican voters calling up them and saying, look, this is important for you to support. Don't, you know, go against this. Or well, they're already getting it. They're getting, they're getting a $1,200 stimulus. I mean, they're getting a check. It was just a one-time check. You know? Yeah. But like, I, I don't think Trump can turn that off between now and the election. I don't think that turns off. I think you see additional stimulus is passed. They're not calling it a UBI. It's, it's in response to the virus, but you cannot turn these things off. Yeah. This is, I mean, but like, this is part of my point, right? Which is, I believe you, I believe if Trump right now called up Andrew Yang and said, I want you to come in and figure out how to turn these $1,200 a month stimulus checks into a new UBI. Yeah. I believe Yang Gang 
would go crazy on Andrew Yang on Twitter if he accepted. Oh no, we we would not go against. Oh, I think that I think I think you're rational. I think you're rational, but I believe if Trump extended that olive branch and asked Yang to come in and do it, number one, I don't know if Yang would accept. Number two, if he did, I think you just see a massive revolt from people because the, the country's so divided politically. No, because we actually kind of already saw this right when we first got into the stimulus checks possibility in the first place. And this was that, you know, Yang even said that he was talking to the White House about this. And we didn't go, oh my gosh, you're talking to the White House. Don't do that. We were like, yes, please talk to the White House. Let's do that. That's what we need. Um, you know, there's a lot of, and this was always like part of the Yang gang itself too, is that, you know, this is not left to right, it's forward. And so it's, it, we don't care uh, like so many other, uh, say, groups would be so much more partisan. Like, you know, I'm, I don't plan, I'm personally not planning on voting for Trump, but I would absolutely work with him myself. I would help him design a plan. I would like, speak to him and, and be his advisor. And, you know, I would be a part of making this happen if it was, uh, if I had the potential to do that, because I just want it to, to happen and make sure that it's designed the best way that we can design it. If a third party picks up the UBI cause, let's call his, uh, let's say Justin Amash is the, is the figurehead for this. Uh, does he, does he, does he stand a chance in November and say, listen, we're sick of these sides fighting. This needs to happen. I'm running on it. Get me elected. I mean, this is a, I think Justin Amash is such a great example of, of why ranked choice voting is so important to all of this too. Um, you know, he's, he's running a campaign and, you know, he, we, we do know that he is, is for this. He's for recurring cash payments. And um, I'm not sure if he's for UBI, like a permanent UBI, but he's certainly, I think, open to it. And given the choice between two anti-UBI presidents, at least Joe Biden is anti-UBI so far, and Trump, um, you know, even though he's been for the stimulus, he's uh, he speaks in a way that I think he's anti-UBI. Um, but Justin Amash has no chance of actually winning because of the fact that we exist in this two-party system. All he can do is function as a spoiler by reducing the amount of votes going to either Biden or Trump. I, I have no idea which one would get more votes from him. Um, but it's that's really unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way. We should be able to vote for whoever we most want to vote for. And then if they, the way the ranked choice system works is if they don't, if no one gets under, or no one gets over 51%, then those are the least votes. Those votes are redistributed to the second choices. And then you do it again, and those are redistributed. The next one is redistributed to the to the, the third choices. And so in that kind of system, you actually can have third-party candidates that actually can win because people will vote for them um, without fear of the spoiler effect. And I think also we would drastically see a difference in the amount of partisanship we have, too, because right now our politics is negative partisan-based, where so many people are voting against the other person instead of for the person they actually want. And if you have a ranked choice system, then you're actually encouraging people to, you know, work together. You say, instead of like being demonizing your opponent, you say, Hey, you know, they're okay. Uh, I, I prefer my policies, but you know, they're fine. And then you can be like their voters second choice or their third choice because you didn't demonize them. And so I think it would be really healthy for our democracy uh, for multiple reasons to get something like that in place. 
Scott, fascinating conversation on UBI. What do it mean for the world? What it means for automation? And what it would mean for, you know, 10, 20 years from now, maybe we don't have a lot of jobs. And there's a lot of people that are quote unquote unemployed, but that could also mean free time to spend with their families. It could mean better child hair development because more moms can stay home with their kids and dads stay home with their kids. It could mean a lot of very healthy things for healthcare as well. I appreciate the conversation. Where can people find you if they want to talk to you more about this? Yeah, you can find me at uh, scottsantons.com. And I actually have a, a, a UBI FAQ there that I recommend that people go to if they have any questions. I've written a lot about um, answers to very frequently asked questions there about UBI. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Santons. Scott, thank you very much. Thank you, Nathan.